Today's scripture verse comes from 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for giving us this day, this time, protected and good. Father, I pray you just uh, open our hearts. May we tune to you, Lord. And this time uh, with Pastor Rick and the message he's prepared, Father, may we draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So one of the greatest lines in any movie comes to us from Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. And I promise you, I'm not a Star Wars dork, but I'm going to use this illustration anyway. All right. It is right when Han Solo is about to get frozen in carbonite. And at that moment, Princess Leia decides it's a good time to reveal her feelings toward him. She says to Han, I love you. And Han, like a stud, looks at her and goes, I know. <laughs> he didn't say ditto. He didn't say, you complete me. He said, I know. I mean, the brazen confidence that it takes in that moment where you're facing death. To just say to somebody, I know, I know. And the, the way the whole movie begins, uh, Leia, uh, I don't know if she's playing hard to get or what, but she's kind of ignoring him. They're on planet Hoth, and, and Han's about to, to leave the command post there, and so she won't even say goodbye to him. And like there, she spends the rest of the movie just like pushing his buttons, like pushing him away, nagging him. And what's he doing the whole time? He's protecting her. He's rescuing her. He's keeping her safe the whole time. Like at some point, she even starts to insult him. You scruffy-headed nerf herder. But he's still like taking care of her, watching over her, protecting her. And so then finally you get to that moment toward the end of the movie where there's Darth Vader. And Darth Vader is about to freeze Han in carbonite. I love you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Like, it explains why he acted the way that he did the whole time. He knew how she felt toward him, and he knew how he felt toward her. It didn't matter. He's just like, I know. So the brazen confidence that, takes play, that, that, that comes out when you know something. And so knowing stuff makes a profound difference in our life. Knowing what we know doesn't just influence us. It actually changes us. What we know alters who we are, our perspective, our attitude, what we do, how we do it. It changes the way that you walk, the way that you speak. We walk with confidence when we know that we know that we know something. You go to work differently when you know what you're supposed to do at work, when you know how to do it, and when you know that you do it well. I mean, there's a little giddy up in your step. Your conversations are livelier when you know what it is that you're talking about. 
Like, you will strut into a classroom before a test if you know the material. Like, knowing completely changes us. It changes everything about us. You lean into life differently. You live with brazen confidence when you know. Well, that's not only true when it comes to worldly stuff. More importantly, it's true when it comes to spiritual life. So let me ask you a few questions. What difference would it make in someone's life if that person were 100% absolutely certain that God loves them? What difference would it make if you're 100% sold out to that truth? What difference does it make in a person's life if that person knows without any shadow of a doubt that all of their sin has been forgiven? What difference would it make in someone's life if they're 100% crystal clear that when they breathe their last breath on earth, their life in heaven begins just like that? Would it make any difference? I think it might. I think it should. I I think that knowing those kinds of truths and realities, if they're true of us, would result in a spiritual confidence that would show itself and reveal itself in the rest of our lives. So we would speak to our spouse differently. We would interact with our children differently if we know God loves me, he's forgiven me, I'm going to heaven. Like, it changes it. Like, my relationships with my neighbors, with my coworkers, something of the spiritual confidence knowing those things should exude and present itself in how I relate with other people. It should change my thought habits. It should change my, my emotional condition. There should be a greater sense of peace, some, some joy in my life as, as I'm walking in this spiritual confidence. It should change my priorities. How I spend my money, how I spend my time, who I spend my time with. Like, what am I doing? How am I living? All of those things would get altered, my walking, my talking, if I absolutely knew 100% without any doubt, God loves me, my sin's forgiven, I'm going to heaven. So, with that, I invite you all to open up to 1 John in your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, stop by the info table and grab one of these. That's our gift to you. We want everyone to have their own copy of God's Word. Uh, But today we're starting a sermon series where we're going to be working our way, walking our way through the book of 1 John. And, And we're doing this with this one goal in mind. We want everyone to live in the know. To live life in the know. I would love for all of us to live with the confidence that comes from knowing that I'm good with God. That I'm right with God. That he loves me, he's forgiven me, and I'm going to heaven. I want us all to live in the know. Christianity is radically different than every other religion on the planet. And I could go through a bunch of ways in which Christianity is different. There is one thing in particular that every other religion holds in common. And that is this. You can never, ever know what happens to you after death. Every other religion on the planet would agree on that. You can't really know. You you can't know if you're going to heaven or whatever they would call heaven. You, you don't know if you're right with God or whatever it is that they call God. You just have to kind of keep your fingers crossed and hope for the best. 
That's literally what the other faiths or religions would teach. They would teach that not only do you need to keep your fingers crossed and hope for the best, you better work your spiritual fingers to the bone and do more good than bad in hopes that just maybe the good that you did outweighed the bad that you did. And then maybe, just maybe, that was just enough to get you where you would want to go. Every other religion on the planet teaches that. Complete and total uncertainty. I'm just hoping. I just wish. I'm trying. I'm doing my best. We'll see how it goes. Christianity stands alone because at the center of our faith is a promise. Eternal life. A promise, y'all. It's a promise. It says in John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus himself said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise. Those who trust in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did, don't need to worry, don't need to fear, don't need to doubt, don't need to question, don't need to wander. All who place their faith in Jesus can know with 100% crystal clear, absolute clarity that God loves them, that their sin's forgiven, and that they're going to heaven. We can live with that full confidence. You know why? Because it's not based on what we do. It is completely based upon the promise of God. That's how we can know. Now, here's the truth. Many of us, most of us, all of us have at least moments, if not seasons, where we question that. Where maybe we doubt it. I don't, I don't feel saved. Whatever that possibly f- might feel like. The Bible never tells us what it feels like to be saved. But I don't feel saved, so I must not be saved. Or I did committed such and such an act and sin, and a believer would never do such a thing, so I must not be a believer. How do I know that that decision I made when I was 13 was real? A lot of stuff has happened since. I've lost a lot of hair since. Like, a lot of life has happened. Like, how do I know? How do I know? So we're going to work our way through this book of 1 John. Because, folks, here, what I, I, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And the reason why is that it tells us how we can know. It gives us a diagnostic evaluation where you can check yourself whether or not you have, in fact, received eternal life. So 1 John was written by the Apostle John. It was, in essence, a letter. And he tells us in the letter, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he tells us why he wrote the letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe, so he's writing to believers who believe in the name of the Son of God, so who believe in Jesus, that you may know that you have eternal life. Like implied in the verse is the very possibility that someone who believes in Jesus may have moments or seasons in which they doubt whether or not they have received life. It's possible, like, to, I, I'm not sure if I know it, I kind of think it, I'm hoping But what he's saying there is, I'm writing to you that you may know that you have eternal life. So we're going to walk our way through this because, folks, there's nothing worse than walking around not knowing or unsure. Especially when it comes to the single most important question that any of us could ever ask, "Where where am I going after I breathe my last breath? 
when all things fade, just like we just sang, when it all fades and I come to that last breath, like I want to be sure about what happens after that. So this book helps us. And so over the next three months or so, we're systematically going to walk through this. And I want to invite you to start reading it on your own. Just go ahead and get ahead of me. Like, just start reading it and reading it so that you can live life in the know, so that you can live with eternal security and eternal assurance and spiritual confidence, that which God wants us to live in. So let's just start working our way down the first couple of verses. First John 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you that the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. All right. Again, a letter written by the Apostle John. He's writing in a world not any different than ours, quite honestly. People are people. I don't care if it's the first century or the 21st century. It's all the same. We just have gadgets, you know. That's all. It's the same. It really is the same. He wrote it to the same world. And just like today, there were all kinds of people back then and today, false teachers, like going around just spouting off a bunch of non-truths about Jesus, a lot of falsehoods about Jesus, just teaching wrongly about who Jesus is. So the first thing we must know if we're going to live in the know is that we got to know Jesus rightly. Got to know who he is. So that's where John begins. The first thing he tells us is that Jesus is God. Let me explain that from these verses. Like, Jesus is not a God. He's not an angel. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is not a man, simply speaking. He's not just some moral teacher or some, simply some religious leader. Jesus is God. This is what he's saying. In verse 1, he refers to Jesus specifically as that which was from the beginning... In that, and he refers to Jesus also as the word of life, that which was from the beginning and also the word of life. Both phrases, from the beginning and word of life, allude to John's gospel, the gospel of John, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, where there he says, in the beginning, there's that word again, in the beginning was the what? Word, there's that word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, when he says that he was, he's that, that which was from the beginning, does not mean that Jesus was created, or that Jesus had a starting point, or that he came into existence at the beginning. What that phrase biblically means is that he was from before the beginning. He wasn't created at some point. He predates the beginning. Well, who predates the beginning? God. So if Jesus predates the beginning, Jesus is. I love that in an adult age, on Sunday mornings, I so often get to employ the transitive property. The only thing I learned from ninth grade algebra, the transitive property, there it is. Like If Jesus predates creation and only God predates creation, Jesus is. God, very clear. It's right straightforward. So he's from the beginning. 
If that's not clear enough, it tells us in the Gospel of John that Jesus is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, is God. So who is Jesus? God. So the Apostle John, though, because he knows we can be a bit stiff-necked and a bit stubborn, a little dense sometimes, and us guys, a bunch of meatheads, right? He wants to make sure that we don't miss it. So he piles on the language. So in 1 John 1, 2, he refers to Jesus as the eternal life, just in case we missed it. So he's from the beginning. He's the word of life, which in another book he said is God. And now he specifically says that Jesus is the eternal life. Well, only God is everlasting. Therefore, Jesus is eternal. And here's the reason why this is so important. It's so important because only an eternal God can give us eternal life. So this is ultimately what we're talking about here. When we talk about, like, am I, does God really love me? Forgiven? Am I going to heaven? We're talking about eternal life. Something, what, what is it that goes beyond here in that life is with God, in the presence of God, in glory and bliss and light and life forever? Well, only a God who is eternal can guarantee giving me that, which is eternal. If Jesus isn't God, I can't trust him in regards to what happens to me after death. Because, I mean, he may be there, but will he be there the day after? Because if he's not God, then he's not eternal, so I can't trust him. Like, if he's not eternal, we can't live with confidence concerning eternity. All right. So Jesus is God. That's the first thing we have to know. If we're going to live in the know, you have to believe that Jesus is God. The second thing we need to know is that while Jesus is fully God, Jesus became fully man. And there's the other part that John tells us about in just the first few verses. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Luke chapter 1, verse 35, we're told that the Virgin Mary... Conceived a child, not by natural or conventional means. She conceived the child through the supernatural power of God. So it is through the miracle of the virgin birth that God took on flesh. Through that act, divinity and humanity were united in the person of Jesus Christ. So that he is fully God and fully man. He is the God-man Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what we refer to as the incarnation. Jesus taking on flesh, which makes sense because in 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2, John tells us that he saw Jesus. So he saw him because Jesus took on flesh. God took on flesh. He touched Jesus. Why? Because God took on flesh, only made possible through the incarnation, only made possible because God manifested himself through human form in the person of Jesus. So that's the word that John uses in verse 2. The life was made manifest. That life, remember, is referring to the word of life, which is also the eternal life, which is a.k.a. Jesus Jesus is the life, and the life was made manifest. The word manifest means to make an appearance. So what that means is that Jesus is God appearing to man. Jesus is God making himself known in order that we may know him. 
that we may know him personally, that we may experience him. And this is key. The reason this is so vital to know is because eternal life means personally knowing Christ. Personally knowing him. John 17 verse 3 says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Look at that verse. This is eternal life that they may know you. What's eternal life? Knowing Jesus, knowing the Lord, knowing God. We have this tendency, and I'm sure that I'm part of the problem for perpetuating this notion, of thinking of salvation and the forgiveness of sins and our status in God and eternal life as this gift certificate, in a sense, that God says, here you go, you want this? Here you go, who else wants one? He's like in heaven, like throwing them out like candy. As if he's like vouchers. Who wants to get into heaven voucher? Here you go. As if he's throwing it out like that. That is not at all what eternal life is. Eternal life is knowing God. It is not something that he gives us apart from himself. Receiving eternal life means receiving Jesus into your life. That's what it means. It's what it is. It's personally knowing him and experiencing God in your life in a loving, relatable, experiential way. You know, I, I love uh, the baptisms from last week. You know, I love every once in a while we'll do the baptisms. And last week we had two. And uh, Miss Sue Tomasco, she shared in her testimony she shared a line that, that I just loved. It says, she knows, she said, I know that Jesus is always with me. And I talk to him constantly. And it brings me peace of mind. That is what eternal life looks like. Peace of mind in the present, in this life. Why? Because I have a relationship with God. I have received something from him. I speak to him. He speaks to me. It might not be audible. He speaks to my soul, to my conscience. He gives me peace of mind. It's real. It's experiential. First, that's the blessing of knowing God, of knowing Christ, of having received the Lord into our lives. And there's only one way to live with spiritual confidence in this life, and that's if you know the Lord yourself. So I ask, do you know him? Do you know the Lord? Have you seen him with the eyes of your heart? Have you seen him? Have you heard from him? There's the only way that we can live with spiritual peace of mind in this life. This is the only way that we can live with spiritual confidence. It is knowing him. That, at the end of the day, is living in the know. So I'll be honest with everybody. Uh, it's, a, it's a weird day. It's a weird Sunday. I don't know what I preached last week. Half the people aren't here today. Uh, on top of that, uh, yeah, like, well, you know, Jesus was risen again today, too, you know, it's like, it wasn't just last Sunday, but anyway, we'll, we'll admonish those people when we see them. Um, <laughs> no, and I, I'm kidding about that, kind of. Um, it, it, it's been a difficult week, 
And, and in one of, the, one of the more difficult weeks in the life of Anthem Church, maybe ever, quite honestly, um, three of our family, of our church family, three different people lost loved one. Three different families lost a loved one this week. And so in the midst of that, I'm like, I don't want to preach. I don't want to prepare a sermon. I don't have time for that. I've got other, I've got other things to, take to, to now worry about. So I didn't want to put a message together. And, and here I am. And, and the reason why, I like spent a few days just sulking. And the, reason, and the reason why, it's just I hate death. I hate it. It's not right. It's absolutely not right. It's abnormal. There's nothing about death that is normal. It's common, but it's not normal. We were not created for death. We were made for life. And we know this in the depths of our soul. That's why anytime we're confronted with death, it jars us. So we hear someone's passing, there's something inside of us that recoils at the thought of it because it's not, no, no, that's not right. And so the awful truth is that our physical bodies, this flesh that we inhabit, is corruptible. And the ultimate corruption is death. So one day, sooner or later, one way or the other, we are all going to expire. We're all going to succumb to death. And what's going to begin to happen on that day is that our bodies are going to undergo a terrible corruption. Our bodies are going to rot. And the physical decay of our bodies is an horrifying, vivid reminder of what sin is and what it does. Sin is the corruption of our soul, and the wages of sin is death. Now, God warned Adam, the first man in the Garden of Eden, you shall eat of any fruit in the Garden of Eden, eat of any of it except for one. Just don't eat of that one tree, for if you do, you will surely die. God warned him. He said, the punishment for disobedience is going to be you're going to return from the dust from which you were made. And we know the story. Adam didn't heed the warning. He didn't listen to God's word. And he ate of the one fruit that God said don't eat of. And through that one deliberate act of disobedience and sin, through that one act, death now plagues the world. It, death entered the world through that sin, through that original sin in the Garden of Eden. So it's because of his sin that the rottenness of sin has been passed down to each and every successive generation and each and every person since then. It is why it plagues the entire human family. Doesn't matter skin color, doesn't matter tribe, doesn't matter what language you speak. Everyone is plagued by death. It's sin is a moral corruption akin to a metastasized cancerous tumor that is just eating away and killing us. That's what it is. 
And there's no avoiding it, folks. It's completely inescapable. Because of sin, we will all one day return to dust. And you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that that's true. Everyday aging, just our normal everyday aging reminds us of our mortality. Each day we discover a new wrinkle, don't we? Every day, hairline's a little further back. Each day, we become a little less mobile, a little less agile, a whole lot more fragile. Every day. No, I, I'm pretty sure, in my mind, I'm 18. I remember 18, I was bulletproof. So I thought. And here recently, here's Bulletproof Rick. And here recently, I had to go to Walgreens and buy triple strength osteobiflex <laughs> with chondroitin. I don't even know what chondroitin is. But you get it when you're old. Because everything hurts. All of a sudden, I can't go to a restaurant and not take reading glasses. Because I can't read the menu. Either the print's too small or it's too dark. Folks, we try to hide it, don't we? Let's get the makeup. Let's go to the mat counter. Let's, let's do our hair. Let's get it did. Need some hair dye up in there. What about some Botox? Let's, let's, we need to hide it, right? I'm, I'm, we're dying. Let's hide it. Oh, I know the trick. Let's, let's eat some kale. Let's, let's fix our diet and start exercising. And you know that all... It, 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 we may look a tad bit better as a result of some of that. And we may be a little bit healthier, and that's a good thing. But you know what? At the end of the day, guess what? Death still comes. It's coming. And death is undefeated so far. Then you have sickness. So sickness is this nagging reminder that death is always, always before us. Get cancer, go to the surgeon. They have to literally cut and excise dead necrotic disease tissue out of your body. What do you think medicine is? It is trying to thwart death at the cellular level. And so every day we sanitize and anesthetize and disinfect and and do everything in an effort to eliminate contamination so we may not be sick. And we do all this to avoid ultimately what is unavoidable. Disease and injury are constant reminders of how corruptible our body is. Disease, sickness, ailment, injury, all of it is a reminder of how limited we are, how fragile we are, how weak we are. And we can turn a blind eye to it, but it doesn't make the reality of it any less. Now, compared to earlier ages, past generations, I would say that we today have a very sterilized notion of death, especially in this country. 
We're not exposed to the ugliness of death the way past generations were. Let me illustrate. Today, we're more than likely to pass in a hospital than we are at home. And then when that happens, the body is quickly whisked away to an undertaker, a person who is trained in cosmetics and embalming. And their job is to make the body look as lifelike as possible. They drain the body of blood, of fluid, and they sew shut the body cavities. Former generations were not as effective at those techniques as we are today. They weren't as effective at immobilizing the corpse the way that we are today. So what would actually happen very often at a funeral is that a corpse would spasm or would sit up in the coffin. There would be, at the viewing, at the visitation, it was common for eyes to pop open or the mouth to open up. It's a horrifying thought, isn't it? Oftentimes, intestinal fluids would actually just leak out of the body. Today, we're much better at hiding death from us, or probably better yet, better said, hiding us from death, hiding ourselves from the reality the terrifying reality that when we die, our body is no longer under our control. Our eyelids, our mouth, our limbs are no longer under our control. With death, change goes only in one direction, and that's toward decomposition. People have reported walking in a cemetery on a hot summer day and hearing explosions under their feet. The reason why is because when our bodies die, they respond like any other decaying matter, like every other decaying matter. The process of death produces gases, and those gases sometimes cause the body to explode. Welcome to Anthem Church. <laughs> is, that not, is that not a terrifying thought? I don't mean just gross. Is that, is that not a horrifying thought? Folks, mortality is our burden. We try it, we ignore it, we turn a blind eye to it, but it's our burden. It's the ultimate corruption of our bodies, and it's inescapable, and it is completely unnatural. God created this world for life, not for death. Death goes completely against God's creation order, and therefore, every death is a death to be mourned. Now, I've been to many funerals in which those funerals, we refer to it as a celebration. And there is a sense in which that is, in fact, true. If that person knows Jesus Christ and their faith was in the Lord and they gave their heart to the gospel, then we celebrate because it's a homecoming. That person is with the Lord to be absent from the body 
is to be in the presence of Almighty God. So that we do celebrate and we rejoice in. In that sense, it's a celebration. But a funeral is not a celebration in that it is a reminder that the person in the casket was still a sinner. And that the wages of sin is death. The more we grow in our faith, the more we understand the Lord and his desires, the more we should abhor death. The more we should see this as a natural, the more frustrated we should become that we live in a world full of cemeteries. Because this is not how it was intended to be at a funeral, there should be this deep groan deep inside of us that says, this is not right. This is not right. Enter Jesus. The only cure for that mortality, the only cure for that death, is Jesus Christ himself. Adam, that first man all the way in the Garden of Eden, he was our representative, and he failed. He sinned, and he failed, and he plunged the rest of us right into the same failure of sin. And to undo the curse, we needed a second Adam, Jesus. That's why God had to take on flesh. We needed someone else from our human family to represent us and succeed where the first one failed us. And the fact is that none of us could have succeeded. We all fall short of the glory of God. We needed someone that could fulfill all of God's law and all of God's righteous requirements. And that could only be God himself. So Jesus had to be God. Our representative had to be God. He had to take on flesh in order to meet the standard that we could not meet. So he had to become man, and he also had to be God, for only God could pay for our sin. So we talk a little bit about the hope of eternal life. Well, the bad news is eternal death to being cast out of the presence of God and out of the goodness of God and and being thrown in a lake of fire and judgment and punishment, that's eternal death. That's the, the bad news. It's the ultimate corruption, not just of the body, but of the soul. And so Jesus goes to a cross, and in love, he sacrificed himself. He says, I will own your sin and your burden and your guilt and your shame. I will own it. I will pay for it. The wages of sin is death. I will die your spiritual death that you may have spiritual life. I, who am eternal life, am going to lay down in the grave that you may have eternal life. That is the hope that we have in Christ. That is the gospel. And all we need to do is grab hold of it. See, God did all the work. He did all the lifting. He did all the dying. He did all of it. And he makes a promise, whosoever believes in the Son of God will not perish, but receive what? Eternal life. The eternal life that God offers is a gift of grace. It cannot be earned. It is not deserved. It is simply something that God gives because he loves us. And we must reach out in faith and grab onto it. That's what faith is. Faith is our heart reaching out to the very promise that God makes. It's reaching out to the gift that God gives us. And that gift is eternal 
not just for today, it's eternal. Some would argue that you can lose your salvation. There's some that would argue that you could lose the gift of eternal life, as if someone received eternal life at some point, and at some point, forfeit it, give it up, relinquish it, walk away from it, give it up, lose it. I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that's the case at all. You can't lose salvation or forgiveness of sins once the Lord Almighty has given it. You can't. The only way you could lose it is if you correlate it to a sock. See, I can lose a sock. Why? It's not part of me. It goes in the laundry and it disappears forever. Why? I don't know. But it's not a part of me. It's not like, I, it's not like a hand. I don't, like, get down the road in the car, like, oh, man, where'd my hand go? Like, no, nah, it's, it's a part of me. It's not going anywhere, right? A sock is not part of me. Folks, eternal life isn't like a sock. Eternal life, the gift of eternal life cannot be lost because it is something that is grafted into our soul and that we ourselves are grafted into. It becomes part of us. The gift is that the Spirit of Christ comes and dwells in us and seals us as a possession that belongs to God Almighty. Ain't nothing getting lost. God doesn't lose any of his sheep. Never, ever. And this is the hope of the Christian faith. Ours looks forward with expectation, not wishful thinking, but with sure enough confidence because we know that the best for us is yet to come. And we know that it is absolutely guaranteed because it is not based upon us. It is based upon the work and the promise of God Almighty. Folks, by God's grace, we can know that we have received that gift. It's like a child who's sick at the hospital, like a terrible disease, goes to the doctor, goes to the hospital, has it cured, gets a clean bill, bill of health, and is released to go home. Folks, this, this is the promise of eternal life. We're sick with sin and death and darkness. God is the great physician. In him, by his grace, we are healed so that we know we get to go home. That's the gospel. That's eternal life. That's, what, that's what's being offered to each and every one of us. So I, want, I just ask, do you know? Do you know that you've received eternal life? Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that you've been forgiven of your sin? Do you know that when you breathe your last breath, your eyes will open up in the presence of God? Do you know? If you're not sure, this series is for you. The book of 1 John is for you. If you're unsure, it could be one of two things. One, maybe you've never received the gift to begin with. And today needs to be the day that you definitively make that decision. I am choosing this gift that God gives. I am choosing to step into eternal life. You have to choose it. You have to decide. So it may be that. Or it may be that there's some other things in your life that have messed with your filter. And that that's what we're going to spend the next few months, like walking through to make sure that you know that you have eternal life.
Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, so much for your grace. I thank you for your gift of love as given through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that you offer forgiveness. And it's all because you love us. Lord, you did not destine us for death. You destined us for something much better, for eternal life. Lord, I pray now that we would be all, each of us individually people who have received this extraordinary gift that you so graciously give. Lord, if there is anyone in this room who has never placed their faith upon Jesus, I ask, Lord, that you would now knock on the door of their heart and that they would open and that they would say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I've run the wrong way. Lord, now I'm tired of that. I want to know where I'm going. I want to know I'm good and right with you. I want to live in the know. Lord, I give my life to you. Or if there are any in the room who've made a decision in the past but have living in fear or wondering and not sure, Lord, I pray that you would bring reassurance to them now. That they would know that they've received that gift, that there would be no guessing, Lord, that there would be absolute certainty and confidence. For all of us, I pray that we would know this so deeply and so well and so truly that it would affect how we live, that it would affect how we engage in our marriage, Lord, that we would be a display of the gospel, that how we act toward our children, that we would build them up and disciple them, that we would be loving toward our neighbor and helpful toward our coworkers and and part of a church family where we share the gospel and share Jesus with others. Lord, I pray that knowing would give us such a spiritual confidence that it would affect how we walk, how we talk, And Lord, if the day ever comes, and when it comes, and it will come, when we breathe our last breath, may we live in such a way that we live, leave no doubt to anyone left where we are. May we know the gospel so well and walk in it that there is no doubt when we breathe our last breath that we are with you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.